Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast for War and Peace Book 8, Chapter 1. Pierre is back in Moscow and he spends much of this chapter swinging from hedonistic pleasure to distressed thoughts of the meaning of life and back again. Tolstoy says it was too frightening to be under the burden of all the insoluble questions of life and he gave himself to the first amusements that came along only so as to forget them. Pierre himself compares his habits to a soldier distracting himself from the danger of enemy fire. In this case, the enemy of fire is life itself. How do you view view Pierre's thoughts, actions, and generally where he is in life right now? Pierre is described as a beloved member of Moscow society in this chapter. It says that where people quarreled he, merely by his kindly smile and an appropriately uttered joke, made peace. Dinners at the Masonic lodges were dull and sluggish if he was not there. This is a far cry from the awkward and strident boy at Anna Pavlovna's soiree. Do you think Pierre has changed, or has society's view of him changed? Secondly, do you think the change is an improvement? Oh, good questions. Um, Has Pierre changed? It's interesting, isn't it? I don't really feel like he has. I just feel like now people like him being around because he's so rich and he just seems to ooze money. He's very generous with his money. And someone like that can light up any room. Suf Jan Fan says, It's very interesting how whenever a character waxes philosophical and takes a particular life perspective, as Pierre did in this chapter, I can always see elements of Tolstoy's own philosophy, from what I've read of his non-fiction, poking through, and yet he manages to keep them all quite distinct. Yeah, I guess um, people are multi-faceted in that way you can have different philosophies all that you subscribe to in your own head and they can all be quite distinct and sometimes even contradictory of one another but you know people talk about people having like a duality of their nature and i think that's true and i think it goes further than that i think people have multitudes of personalities that can all contradict each other simultaneously you know just how we are, we're very, very complex things. So you can put bits of yourself into a story and have two different characters completely opposing one another and still they are really just parts of yourself. Thyroid Dude says, Pierre, who must be about 30 by now in 1811, has now reached middle age. He seems to be going through a proverbial midlife crisis. He, as he realises the things he has done in the past were either material or unfulfilled idealistic pursuits. I think the answer to the question is both. Pierre and society's perception of him have changed. He enters the novel an illegitimate heir who longs for social acceptance. When he receives his large inheritance, he is elevated to a new level in society, and society tries to manipulate his wealth through marriage and or charitable causes. But this change in society's acceptance would most likely occur with any individual that inherited the wealth that Pierre now possesses. Pierre's social interaction in 1811 society is an improvement compared to 1805. Yeah, I guess he is changing. Same old Pierre, but he is changing. (laughs) Chapter 2 of Book 8 goes like this. At the beginning of winter, Prince Nicholas Bolkonsky and his daughter moved to Moscow. At that time, enthusiasm for the Emperor Alexander's regime had weakened, and a patriotic and anti-French tendency prevailed there. And this, together with his past and his intellect and his originality, 
at once made Prince Nicholas Bolkonsky an object of particular respect to the Moscovites and the centre of Moscow opposition to the government. The prince had agreed very much that year. Sorry, I read that wrong. The prince had aged very much that year. He showed marked, marked signs of sen senility by a tendency to full sleep, forgetfulness of quiet recent events, remembrance of remote ones, and the childish vanity with which he accepted the role of head of the Moscow opposition. In spite of this, the old man inspired in all his visitors alike a feeling of respectful veneration, especially of an evening when he came in to tea in his old-fashioned coat and powdered wig, and aroused by everyone, told his abrupt stories of the past and uttered yet more abrupt and scathing criticisms of the present. For them all, that old-fashioned house with its gigantic mirrors, pre-revolution furniture, powdered footmen, and the stern, shrewd old man, himself a relic of the past century, with his gentle daughter and the pretty Frenchwoman, who were reverently devoted to him, presented a majestic and agreeable spectacle. But the visitors did not reflect that, besides the couple of hours during which they saw their host, there were also twenty-two hours in the day during which the private and intimate life of the house continued. Latterly, that private life had become very trying for Princess Mary. There in Moscow she was deprived of her greatest pleasures, talks with the pilgrims, and the solitude which refreshed her at Bald Hills, and she had none of the advantages of pleasures of the city life. She did not go out into society. Everyone knew that her father would not let her go anywhere without him, and his failing health prevented him from going outside himself, so that she was not invited to dinners and evening parties. She had quite abandoned the hope of getting married. She was the coldness. She saw the coldness and malevolence with which the old prince received and dismissed the young men, possible suitors, whom sometimes appeared at their house. She had no friends. During this visit to Moscow, she had been disappointed in the two who had been nearest to her. Mademoiselle Boreen, with whom she had never been able to be quite frank, had now become unpleasant to her, and for various reasons Princess Mary avoided her. Julie, with whom she had corresponded for the last five years, was in Moscow, but proved to be quite alien to her when they met. Just then, Julie, who, by the death of her brothers, had become one of the richest heiresses in Moscow, was in the full whirl of society pleasures. She was surrounded by young men who she fancied had suddenly learned to appreciate her worth. Julie was at that stage in the life of a society woman when she feels that her last chance of marrying has come and that her fate must be decided now or never. On Thursday, Princess Mary... On Thursdays, Princess Mary remembered with a mournful smile that she now had no one to write to, since Julie, whose presence gave her no pleasure, was here and they met every week. Like the old emigre who declined to marry the lady with whom she, he had spent his evenings for years, she regretted Julie's presence and having no one to write to. In Moscow, Princess Mary had no one to talk to, no one to whom to confide her sorrow, and much sorrow fell to her lot just then. The time for Prince Andrew's return and marriage was approaching, but his request to her to prepare his father for it had not been carried out. In fact, it seemed as if matters were quite hopeless, for at every mention of the young Countess Rostova, the old prince, who apart from that was usually in a bad temper, lost control of himself. Another lately added sorrow arose from the lesson she gave her six-year-old nephew, 
to her consternation, she detected in herself, in relation to little Nicholas, some symptoms of her father's irritability. However, often she told herself that she must not get irritable when teaching her nephew. Almost every time that, pointer in hand, she sat down to show him the French alphabet, she so longed to pour her own knowledge quickly and easily into the child, who was already afraid that Auntie might at any moment get angry, that at his slightest inattention she trembled, became flustered and heated, raised her voice, and sometimes pulled him by the arm and put him in the corner. Having put him in the corner, she would herself begin to cry over her cruel, evil nature, and little Nicholas, following her example, would sob and without permission would leave his corner, come to her, pull her wet hands from her face and comfort her. But what distressed the princess most of all was her father's irritability, which was always directed against her and had of late amounted to cruelty. Had he forced her to prostrate herself to the ground all night, had he beaten her or made her fetch wood or water, it would never have entered her mind to think her position hard. But this loving despot, the more cruel because he loved her and for that reason tormented himself and her, knew how not merely to hurt and humiliate her deliberately, but to show her that she always, always was to blame for everything. Of late he had exhibited a new trait that tormented Princess Mary more than anything else. This was his ever-increasing intimacy with Mademoiselle Borine. The idea that at the first moment of receiving the news of his son's intentions had occurred to him in jest, that if André got married, he himself would marry Borine, had evidently pleased him. And latterly he had persistently, as it and as it seemed to Princess Mary merely to offend her, shown special endearments to the companion and expressed his dissatisfaction with his daughter by demonstrations of love of Borine. One day in Moscow, in Princess Mary's presence, she thought her father did not purposely did it purposely when she was there. The old man pris the old prince kissed Mademoiselle Borine's hand and drawing her to him embraced her affectionately. Princess Mary flushed and ran out of the room. A few minutes later, Mademoiselle Borine came into Princess Mary's room, smiling and making cheerful remarks in her agreeable voice. Princess Mary hastily wiped away her tears, went resolutely up to Mademoiselle Borine, and evidently unconscious of what she was doing, began shouting in angry haste at the Frenchwoman, her voice breaking. It's horrible, vile, inhuman to take advantage of the weakness. She did not finish. Leave my room, she exclaimed, and burst into sobs. Next day, the prince did not say a word to his daughter, but she noticed that at dinner he gave orders that Mademoiselle Borine should be served first. After dinner, when the footman handed coffee, and from habit began with the princess, the prince suddenly grew furious, threw his stick at Philip, and instantly gave instructions to have him conscripted for the army. He doesn't obey. I said it twice, and he doesn't obey. She's the first person in this house. She's my best friend cried the prince, and if you allow yourself, he screamed in a fury, addressing Princess Mary for the first time, to forget yourself again before her, as you dared to do yesterday, I will show you who is master in this house. Go, don't let me set eyes on you. Beg her pardon. Princess Mary asked Mademoiselle Borine's pardon, and also asked her father's pardon for herself and for Philip, the footman, who had begged for her intervention. At such moments, something like a pride of sacrifice gathered in her soul, and suddenly that father, whom she had judged, would look for his spectacles in her presence, fumbling near them and not seeing them, would or would forget something that had just occurred, or take a false step with his failing legs and turn to see if anyone had noticed his feebleness, or, worst of all, at dinner, 
when there were no visitors to excite him, would suddenly fall asleep, letting his napkin drop and his shaking head sink over his plate. He is old and feeble, and I dare to condemn him, she thought at such moments, with a feeling of revulsion against herself. All right, there we go. Another chapter down. Things are pretty awful in the uh, Bolkonsky household. You've got to feel bad for Princess Mary. Gee whiz. All right, have your say about that chapter on the subreddit, and I will see you tomorrow.